Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Uh, I wonder who will play me when this podcast inevitably becomes a drama. Um, apparently it's in the Times today that lots of podcasts are becoming BBC dramas. So let me know who you think might be playing me. In response to the story, uh, the actual Times leader, the editorial, praises, sort of, uh, Red Box. Says today's podcasts are slicker than their forebears. The Times would like to think that the production values of its own offerings, like Stories of Our Times, and the Red Box podcast are unimpeachable. Let us know what you think about that. Coming up on today's episode, she's known as Britain's strictest head teacher. She's now also the head of the Social Mobility Commission. Catherine Burble-Singh speaks to me about discipline in schools, levelling up and why she thinks all children are born with original sin. But first, it's time for our columnist panel. Normally, it's Libby Rachie on a Monday, but no Libby Perth today. So instead, we've got Rachel Sylvester, joined by Carol Lewis, Deputy Property Editor of The Times and The Sunday Times. The first thing I want to ask you about is the politics of Peppa Pig. Oh, gosh. Boris oh, Johnson. My, I've missed this one. Boris Johnson has been addressing the uh, CBI conference, the home of British business, as they lay out detailed plans for how to level up the country and this is what he responded with. Yesterday I went, uh, as, as we all must, uh, 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 to, to Peppa Pig World. I don't know if you've been to Peppa Pig World. Who's been to Peppa Pig World? anybody who's been to Peppa Pig World? <laughs> Not enough. I was, well, it's, it's fact, I was a bit hazy what I would find at Peppa Pig World, uh, but I loved it. And Peppa Pig World is, is very much my kind of place. Uh, it, 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 uh, it, it has... Uh, a uh, very safe streets, uh, discipline in schools, uh, heavy emphasis on new mass transit systems, I, I notice, uh, even if they're a bit stereotypical about, about Daddy Pig. There we are. That's the, that's the Prime Minister there praising the, uh, the, the internal politics of Peppa Pig world. Uh, Rachel Sylvester, respected uh, <laughs> Times uh, interviewer, columnist and journalist. Your, your reaction to that? it all himself is he daddy pig in this scenario slightly overweight you know pinkish cat and completely um, useless and then, <laughs> it's pretty useless exactly um i don't think there's much political analysis in that what about you carol i've never been to peppa pig world <laughs> it is very good at the risk of this becoming a massive plug for peppa pig world it is very good do you think this is what boris should be aspiring to then well i mean it's very i mean he's not it is as a as a sort of cartoon turned into real life theme park it's very good i'd say it's even better than uh, 
crinkly bottom. He probably wants to go there to escape all the rows at the moment about migrants and social care. Well, yeah. All right, then. Let's move on, then. We'll move on from Peppa Pig World and talk about... Uh, let's talk about social care. And um, this this change the government is planning to make, it's a technical change, which means that previously, uh, poor people who needed care, uh, if it was means-tested, the council might have helped out. And uh, what they're going to do is take out the council spending from the cap. So if previously, so the cap is going to be £86,000. Previously, if, for example, the person paid £40,000 and the council put in £46,000, they would hit the cap. Because now the person would have to spend £86,000 of their own to hit the cap. And that's what that's the big change. So actually, it's the poorest people who would have previously been helped, by the, out, helped out by the council are going to end up paying more. Absolutely. There are a lot of people who breathed a sigh of relief when he announced the policy and thought, thank goodness I'm not going to have to sell my home. I think he said at the time when he announced it, no more dither, no more delay. He sh- should have said no more chaos as well. I mean, this is moving the goalposts after the fact. At the moment, they only have to pay f- up to 50% of their assets. This would, as you say, turn it into 86%. So if you've got less than 100000 in assets and you thought you were going to share the cost up to 86000 you're now footing that yourself. That could mean, if you're in an area with low property values, for instance, you are going to have to sell your house. And they did say, you will not have to sell your house. So now they're going Which back on Which is such that. a... And you know this because you're the deputy property editor. But the, 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 the emotional connection to what is often the long-standing family home and the promise that, in old age, if you get ill, you won't have to sell your home, you'll be able to pass it on... Uh, and so on. That's such a, it's not just a sort of economic thing, is it? It's such a No, it's highly powerful, emotive. Yeah. It's highly emotive. I also think coming off the back of, of the train fiasco last week, then those MPs in the northern regions are right to get, you know, really quite cross with this. Rachel, the, um, the thing that I find so surprising about this is off the back of, well, we had sewage in rivers, then Owen Patterson, then trains last week. The fact the government's gone out of its way to then have a vote this week on something else which is going to rile up its already unhappy backbenchers. I mean, it's just it, politically, it seems daft. Totally toxic, and especially given that it's going to hit those voters in the red wall seats, those seats that the Tories won from Labour at the last election. They're going to be far hardest hit. Um, you know, they're the people who are going to have to sell their homes because property prices are lower there. Um, and it just feels, again, like another example of Treasury pen- penny-pinching, actually, as well as political misjudgment. Um, but, you know, the government did do a brave thing in, in setting out a plan for social care and announcing it was going to increase national insurance to pay for it. But it's not put enough money in, so it has to fiddle around in this way to try and save money. And there's a lot easier places to save money, isn't there, Rachel? I mean, there's a lot easier mm. places to cut costs. I mean, look at consultants. And yeah. <laughs> in uh, test and trace, we can, we can cut costs yeah. there. Well, the amazing thing about this is it, it's saving five hundred million pounds. The uh, health and social care levy, the new tax that everyone's going to have to pay, is raising thirteen, fourteen billion pounds. So, uh, Rachel, do you think this is just essentially this is Rishi Sunak saying, well, "I want to see more savings out of this." They have a massive fight over the principle of it. The the actual amount they're saving is not. I mean, five hundred. I mean, clearly five hundred million pounds is a lot of money to normal people. Um, I mean, less so if you're a Tory MP with a second job, possibly. But um, is this just a sort of battle between number 10 and number 11? And ultimately, it's the, the poorest people needing to pay their own care who end up footing the bill. That is the basic problem. Yes, they're going to be worse off 
than they are now, where people in the South are arguably going to be better off. And that's levelling up for you, which is what the Prime Minister has been talk- was in theory talking about at um, the CPR. Peppa Pig at, world. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what we need is more um, rabbits driving buses. That's what we need. That's <laughs> definitely what we need. Um, uh, Carol, let's turn attention to the other, I mean, the other thing which is riling up Tory MPs. It's really interesting in the, a lot of the coverage of the social care. Some MPs are very cross about it, and other MPs telling the Times today, uh, my post bag is actually full about full of small boats crossing yes. the channel. And that's another thing which is which is riling up MPs, and another thing the government can't seem to get a grip on. Um, more than two twenty four thousand five hundred people have now crossed the channel so far this year, three times as many as last year. However, one interesting stat is in fact, I tweeted this morning, let me find it, is that in the year to June the, num- the total number of people arriving in the UK and applying for asylum was down, I think, 4% on the year before. And in part, it's because all of the other avenues into the UK, road, rail and air, have been, you know, subject of lockdown and people aren't coming. So just to sort of put it into perspective, we're not being swamped by loads more asylum seekers. They are just, you know, almost all currently coming across in in small boats. I suppose as as transport opens up, then we might uh, see that yes, going it's not, up. Yes, it's not about absolute numbers here, is it? And it's a very emotive thing, and it's the pictures, mm. and it's the, you know, the, the, yes. the pictures of boatloads of people arriving on with the children, south coast. particularly yeah. with the children. So, yes, but, I mean, the idea that we're going to send the army to patrol the beaches in France is... I think, a bit out of proportion. I mean, the whole thing's descended into farce. I think today we have reports that Priti Patel is actually saying her own department isn't fit for purpose. The members of her own department are saying, what do you know, you're an idiot. <laughs> I know the briefing more. And then we've had um, the... the uh, I mean, Priti Patel is blamed uh, France. Obviously, France has been to blame. Mm. Over the weekend, we've been told she's blaming Germany because of their um, willingness to accept, uh, I think, a million people from yes, uh, yeah. Syria. Uh, she's blamed Facebook and TikTok. She's blamed the weather. She's blamed the EU more generally. Um, but, but none of that seems to be uh, working. Rachel, it's an interesting question here. Where um, and I've, I wrote my column about it on, on Saturday in the Times, that actually at some point, if you keep going around saying everything's broken and you are in charge of the broken thing, do you get some political... Do you end up paying a political price for that? Or, ultimately, is this a thing where nobody thinks the Labour Party would be any better? Yeah, well, I thought your line about policy by total wipeout was brilliant. That that sense of this increasingly mad idea... Oh, that was the building inflatable walls in the walls channel, yeah. And, you know, and then they've, they're going to have, you know... Um, people patrolling to turn boat, small boats back. There's just a sense of incompetence and chaos... You're right, though. Politics is a relative game. So if voters don't think the Labour Party would do a better job, they'll give the Tories the benefit of the doubt. But given everything else that's going on, the sort of chaos does add to this sense of incompetence. And, you know, the whole point of Brexit was to take back control. And that's exactly what's not happened. Absolutely nothing to do with the EU, these people coming over the channel. It's just to do with a government lack of grip. But, I mean, the interesting thing in response to when I wrote about it on Saturday was lots of people said, well, what would you do about it? I mean, my flippant answer is I'm not the Home Secretary claiming to be doing everything in my Mm. power. Um, But it's a really difficult question to answer, isn't it, Cal? It's it's impossible, and I don't think anyone's ever got to grips with it. But the thing is about having a clear, focused strategy. 
And that's what the government are lacking. They look like they're all over the place. One minute we're going to be sending people to Albania, then we're going to be putting them on oil rigs, then we're in, I mean, infl inflatables. I mean, the whole thing is ridiculous. Instead of saying this is very difficult, no government's got to grips with it, this is how we think we should address it and being very clear and, and focused. What about you, Rachel? If you were, um, it, I was going to say, if you were Home Secretary, I just think it would be quite different. But well, is there, I mean, the problem is, is the mistake to go around claiming that there is an answer? Um, well, I, th I do think if you have a, a functioning, legitimate immigration and asylum system that's sufficient, that's quick, that's working, then people wouldn't need to. Yeah, and I suppose that's the thing, isn't it? Is if you had a, if the government was saying, look, we are going to take. 30,000, 40,000, 50,000, 100,000 people through legitimate routes, that would buy them the moral authority, essentially, to then be much tougher on the, the people who are coming across the channel. Yes, and to deal with the backlog and to give people a fair hearing and to be looking like they've actually got some policies and are doing something clear and structured, rather than at the moment they look very reactive rather than proactive. They're just you know, sound bites all yeah, over the place. Yeah. This is very typical of Boris's government. This is governed by press release rather yeah. than uh, uh, rather than any action. Uh, thank you to Rachel Sylvester and Carol Lewis, <laughs> uh, Deputy Property Editor. <laughs> Lovely to see you. Uh, thanks for joining us. Carol Lewis and Rachel Sylvester there. Of course, you can read them in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Up next is my interview with Catherine Burble-Singh. She is known as the strictest head teacher in Britain. And last month, Catherine Burble-Singh was appointed the new chair of the Social Mobility Commission, tasked with advising the government on how best to tackle inequality in the wake of the pandemic. But what can running the high-achieving Michaelia Free School in North London teach us about how to level up the country? Well, we can ask her because Catherine Burble-Singh joins me now. Good morning. Morning. Nice to be with us. Now, I can see you um, there at your desk. Are you in school? I am in school. Of course I'm in school. <laughs> <laughs> and how is, how, is a, how is your school doing? You know, we're um, somewhere coming out of the pandemic. How, how many of your students are missing because of COVID and that sort of thing? Oh, not very many. Well, that's um, good. Yeah, no, we're, we're um, you know, moving along as usual. Uh, real focus on learning and... Um, I don't know, actually. It's not it's not that different to the way it was before COVID, really. And what impact has the last uh, 18 months had on your students and, you know, with your Social Mobility Commission hat on um, more broadly, uh, the effect of so much time out of school and actually, you know, lots of the rules and restrictions that were put in place? How, how concerned are you about that? Yeah, so it's a good question. Um, I recently said, as I often say things that seem relatively controversial, <laughs> um, that if we were to sort out behavior in our classrooms across the country, that would go a very long way to catching children up 
you'd be amazed at how resilient children are and how able they are to catch up when given the right kind of environment. And I would say that uh, COVID or no COVID, um, children, especially disadvantaged children, fall behind in more chaotic situations. And when I say more chaotic situations, I mean not being held to account for their learning, for their homework, um, school just being a lot more relaxed as opposed to a much more ordered and structured place. And um, we tend to think to ourselves, okay, they're behind. What we need to do is add on extra lessons. Uh, things I hear, for instance, that can happen at school is that government might provide the school with an extra lot of money to say, okay, you can, um, you can, pay teachers extra to do sort of extra lessons with them, or you can get tutors in to do extra lessons, which, you know, sounds like a great idea. Um, but in fact, what can happen is that children are taken out of their lessons in order to access this tutor. And that means they're not accessing their lesson, for instance. Um, and actually, I would say that lessons with a good teacher in a classroom, there's no way of competing with that and what we need to do is make it so that there's great behavior in all of our classrooms so that all of the kids are able to access the learning i wonder where you stand on the on the sort of the, the debate of how much money was needed for um catching up um sir kevin collins who was the uh, education recovery czar for a little bit uh he he's he announced proposals or called for proposals worth uh, 15 billion pounds the treasury coughed up 1.4 billion I wonder where which side of the argument you're on. Well, I mean, I wouldn't want to say it, put a number on it. And my general position on these sorts of things is money is always a great thing to have. However, how are we using it? And uh, there, there are some people who think that it's only about getting more money. And the fact of the matter is that at the beginning of 2000s, you know, we were spending less than half of what we currently spend on education. Uh, you know, you were looking at under 40 billion. Now it's way over 90 billion that we spend every, every year. And yet there are some Europe, Eastern European countries that would uh, outcompete us on PISA, for instance, which are the international tests that children take across the world. Uh, Lithuania, for instance, does quite well and so on. So you then kind of think, well, they're obviously not spending as much money as we are. What's going wrong? Yeah. So what, um, what what is the what is the thing that makes the difference then? If it's not because sometimes, particularly in political life, it could become a bit of an arms race of who can promise the most money. What yes. for you is the thing that makes the difference then for children succeeding if not money? Yeah. So there, there's a few things in terms of what the schools can do. A big one is discipline. <laughs> so if we have really great discipline in the classrooms, the teachers are able to teach. Uh, too often, teachers will complain rightly about the fact that they're unable to teach um, because there's too too much disruption, either low level disruption. You know, if, if there's a few kids banging on the table like this constantly and then other kids are sort of chatting and some kids are staring out the window and the teacher's teaching. It sounds like you're talking about Prime Minister's questions. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, um, yeah, I. I, I it is a bit like that in that sense. Um, and um, the thing is, is that the disadvantaged children are the ones who really suffer. They could be disadvantaged because they're not supported at home in terms of lots of books and that kind of thing, or their parents don't speak English. It could be that they're disadvantaged because 
you know, they're not as bright as the other children in that class, for instance. Uh, some of them might have special needs. You know, all of those sorts of children end up underachieving massively. Other ones might be okay because their parents can hire tutors or when they go home that night, they can have a chat at the dinner table about the politics of the day where they pick up knowledge about science and geography without even realizing it. But if you don't have that kind of background, then you're depending entirely on your school to be able to give you access to other options in life. Um, to, to, I always talk about keeping all the doors open for all children uh, when they leave school. and. Um, I think people don't necessarily understand the connection between discipline and having those outcomes. If the teacher is unable to teach properly and have everyone's attention, then the kids who lose out the most are the disadvantaged ones in that class. And um, uh, unfortunately, I would say that there is too much, both in the society and in some of our teachers, uh, a sense of somebody like me, for instance, is is far too draconian and I'm, you know, I'm, 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 they imagine I'm some evil witch who uh, marches through the corridors with whips and chains and that I, I really love the idea of putting children in detention. When so in fact, <laughs> yeah, go on. No, I was going to say, so when, when, when you're described as the strictest head teacher in Britain, what does that mean? In, I was going to say, what does that mean in practice? It, assuming that there aren't whips and chains. Um, what what are the things that you do which are strict, which the other schools which you would say are letting students down don't do? Let's talk in yeah. sort of practical terms. I'm mucking about in a lesson. What what would you do to me? Okay, so that kind of thinking is sort of the wrong kind of thinking. And what I mean by that is people imagine the only reason why children behave is what you're going to do to them. Because I don't have more at my disposal than any other school. All schools set detentions. We set detentions. So then you think, well, then what's the difference, actually? Because I'm, I'm no more, I don't have more to do. You know, I'm not able to do more to them. It's not what you're going to do to them that makes them behave. It's the culture that you have created in this school that gets them to behave, the vast majority of them. So you're saying messing about in the lesson. You see, our children would never mess about in the lesson in the first place. So, but in part, to... because there is a transactional thing, in part because they know you'll come down on them. And maybe in other schools, they'll get away with it. The teacher will roll their eyes or whatever. So what, what are the, how many, you know, what are the, the stricter things that, if, if, that you would advise a struggling school to do? Okay. So then you need to go after the little things. You know how people say if you take care of the pennies, the pounds take care of themselves? Yeah. It's the same thing when it comes to behavior. So if you, if you are annoyed about the little things, it's not that you actually care about whether or not their ties are to the top. I mean, what do I care? I don't. But if I make it so that moving your tie down is a great offense, it means nobody does it. If I make it so that uh, if you, you need to bring a pen into school, and that is an absolute, you know, basic requirement, then everybody brings a pen into school. If, on the other hand, you run the school in a way of, well, it doesn't really matter if they don't bring a pen in. I mean, at the end of the day, that's too much to expect of these kids. Then lots of people won't bring pens in. Um, it's the same thing you say messing about in a lesson. You see, our children, for instance, if they were to turn around, if they were to turn around to chat to their mate, they would immediately get a detention. Now, you then think, how mean? But what it means is, Nobody ever turns around in lessons to talk to their friends. It just never happens. So you create then a culture of expectation that the children have of themselves. If you were to ask the children, well, why do you behave as you do? They wouldn't tell you, well, because otherwise I'm going to get a detention. 
they would say to you, because that's who I am. Sorry, those are our pips going, you see, because I'm in school. It's the lesson changeover. Ah, that's very good. Oh, so, so it like sounded a bit like a fire alarm and you might have to evacuate. So that's good. That just means that that's the, the, the changeover in lessons. Let me say, right now, right now, as we speak, the children are moving lessons. In most schools right now, you would hear going on. And you, there would be stamping and stampeding and lots of screaming and running through the corridors. And some kids would get shoved to the side and maybe a fight would break out over there and all sorts of madness would happen. And then lessons wouldn't necessarily start properly for another 10 minutes because it would take the children that long for the entire class to get into their class and then to actually get the order for them sitting in their chairs and all working well, that takes time. Right now, you can't hear anything right now. All I can hear is a little pitter-patter of feet <laughs> up there. That's all I can hear. There's no noise. And that's because our, our um, corridors are silent. And when I say silent, it's because the children will say morning, good afternoon to their teachers, but they're moving very quickly. And I know within a minute and a half now, they will be in their next lesson learning. And that means your disadvantaged kids who are desperate for every minute of learning to happen in the classroom, they access it which makes sure that they have more doors open to them later on in the future. So when it comes to the point about social mobility, schools play such a huge mm. part in enabling that social mobility because some kids are depending on their school to give them the knowledge and skills that they need to be able to have all doors open to them later on in life. And I would argue that not all schools are managing to do that. I want to ask about one sp one specific thing, um, and you were talking about parent, you know, that difference that, that having a supportive uh, structure at home and the role of parents. And I know you've talked before about how it's not just down to the state to teach children that parents, you know, that is a massive part that parents play. How do you how do you deal with uh, a child? You know, because maybe in the olden days, sitting down with a book with your child was an easy thing to do. And now there are so many distractions. There's mobile phones, there's Netflix, there's a constant stream of uh, screens and distractions. How can parents uh, deal with that? What's your, what's your position on sort of mobile phones and screens and that sort of thing? Yeah, so that's a really good question. It is so hard to bring up a child nowadays because of all of that stuff. And often children are far more adept on it than their own parents. So their parents are just outwitted by their children because they're just better at the technology. Um, first thing I would say is with young children, you shouldn't give them access to screens. You know, I sit on the tube and I see a two-year-old toddler with, his, with a smartphone keeping him busy. Don't do it. If you want your child to love reading, it will be much harder for that to happen if he's used to screens. A book that's black and white and flat cannot compete with a smartphone with all the colors and explosions and adverts and so on. Best thing to do is to keep them off screens altogether for as long as you can. Now, I know parents might say, but there might be a maths app that I wanna do and so on. Okay, that's fine. And I, I might encourage that even, but you need to sit down with your child and do it with your child. It's certainly the case that you should not be giving them their own phone. We strongly encourage our families, and remember, they're 11 plus here, so you know they're, they're 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 years old. And we say to parents, give them a brick phone. We actually sell them at the school, brick phones, at a loss. So I buy them in for 14 pounds, we sell them for 10 pounds, and that's because I know it's one of the biggest things that will help that child succeed. 
Uh, you can still contact your, your, your child. It, it makes it easy with texting and ringing them, um, but they're not having unsupervised access to the internet. And that is the thing that is dangerous. You're putting your child's life in danger because every pedophile and gang member out there knows where your child lives, knows where they go to school, knows their friends, knows what they enjoy. And the thing is, if your child starts getting groomed and I, parents just don't realize how often this sort of thing happens, um, your child in the end, you lose control. You just don't know what your child is doing. And your child might end up lying to you then without you realizing. So their life is in danger, but it's not just their lives. It's also, even if that doesn't happen, that you're breaking their brains. You are putting them under such huge pressure. Uh, there's a wonderful article in the Atlantic by Jonathan Haidt this week um, about how the increase in depression and anxiety has gone through the roof with regard to girls and how uh, there is so much pressure on them to look a certain way, be a certain way, and that social media totally destroys their self-image uh, and their self-esteem. I, my own experience has been, I've seen, I've seen boys, it happens to as well, and boys who get involved in another road of, you know, they go down the road of getting involved with real undesirables, people who you don't want your child to be hanging out with, and you don't know that's happening because it's all being done via the phone. It is, they're just, it's so dangerous. Keep your children away from those smartphones. So how, at what age do you think it's okay for a child to have a smartphone? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. And you know what? All those CEOs in uh, California who are earning big money uh, off of our ignorance, they tend to keep their children off these things until they're about 16. And if they do have a phone, they don't give them data. Steve Jobs, when he was asked in 2010, uh, what when the iPad came out, he was asked what his children thought of the iPad. And he turned around and said, well, obviously I haven't given my children the iPad. I, why would I do that? And we imagine that all these guys are, are giving it to their children. The, the reality is they are protecting their own children from this stuff and pushing it out onto our children. And we who don't have the same knowledge as they do about the dangers around this stuff, their children are protected. They get rich and fly around in private jets off of our ignorance. So um, yeah, I would say as long as you can. And the thing is, I know I'm not, I'm saying something that's really hard because the fear of missing out, children are under such pressure to be in that world because they feel like they're missing out on their friends and so on. Parents then think, well, God, I've got to give her something. What I would say is if you really can't just stay away from the smartphone, my advice would be to um, share a phone. So what I mean is you, you, you might have a, a family phone that you allow your child to sit on there and do their social media for half an hour while you watch them. And you might ha allow them uh, a, an account where you, you are sharing. So you and your child are in the photo for the avatar. And it's very much both of yours account because they just let them on there with no supervision. Honestly, you're dicing with death. Well, uh, I think lots of parents will will have sympathy with the with the uh, with with the intent, albeit struggling with the reality. But um, it's really it's a really really interesting point. Um, Catherine, uh, lots of messages in. I mean, this is just a sort of um, uh, random selection. What a load of nonsense! Kids are individuals. This school is taking away from them. This school sounds so depressing and unhappy. Uh, the lack of check creativity would be suffocating. Says someone else. Um, what's your response to that? The, the they might be sort of really concentrating on their on their lessons and it might you know everyone's walking around in silence and doing as they're told and they all look very smart and they're completely but is there any fun at your school there's loads of fun and if you came you would see very happy children and i'd say that they're happier than other children and the reason they're happier is because they're safe um and also they're learning that's key 
children's self-esteem depends on them feeling successful. And if they're learning loads and loads, then they're really happy. And the interesting thing is the creative point. People don't understand that chaos and relaxation does not inspire creativity. In fact, it's order and safety that allows the child to then uh, step outside the box and think for himself and be independent and creative and push the boat out a bit. You know, I just had somebody in visiting um, who was uh, going around and he was just talking to me saying, I've never seen so many hands up in a lesson. I've never seen kids so excited about learning. He just couldn't believe what he was seeing. And that's because they're confident. They know what they, they know their stuff. Boris Johnson once came to our school when he was mayor of London and um, was talking to a class. Well, actually he wasn't, he was just watching the class. The teacher was talking to the class and the teacher asked a question and a kid responded. And Boris interrupted and said, no, 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 actually, I think you'll find it's this date instead. And our pupil pushed back and said, no, you're wrong. <laughs> and um, he pushed back and it was interesting because Boris Johnson then went away and checked it and our boy was right and he was wrong. And so not only was our boy right, our boy had the confidence to challenge the mayor of London and to stick to his guns, you know? And so the fact is this idea that somehow order and structure is going to hurt children. It's what allows them to be creative, to be resilient. One of the big things our guests, we get 600 visitors here every year and mainly teachers, and they all come and say, how do you do it? It's not possible. You know, one of a, a friend of mine who works in, in a school not too far from here, he came here and he asked all our kids where they'd been to primary school. And then he came bursting into my office at one point and said, I don't understand Catherine, what, what's happened? they're all the same kinds of kids that we have same primary schools and yet look at them he just believe <laughs> so the thing is is that i would say those people who are who wonder about it will come and visit come and see what the kids are like and talk to them ask them questions about their thoughts on things and you will see very confident very happy children whose self-esteem is just blossoming because they are so successful um, I think the very idea that Boris Johnson might have been wrong about something will come as a huge shock to everyone. Um, <laughs> what is the... Uh, um, I've, you've taken over as the, uh, the head of the uh, Social Mobility Commission. Um, Sammy Wright, uh, who's a teacher and previous member of the commission, when we've spoken to him before, he said that part of the problem is that you do, the commission does lots of work and research and takes evidence and comes up with ideas. And very few of those actually then become government policy. So how are you going to persuade Boris Johnson? Maybe you get your students to, to, to put him in his place, but how do, you, how do you persuade the government to follow up on what you, the work that you think uh, needs to be done? Levelling up, everyone's talking about, levelling up is now attached to every idea going. The Social Mobility Commission exists for the very purpose of levelling up. It's not just geographic, but socially, you know, right across the country. How are you going to make sure that Boris Johnson listens to your suggestions? Yeah, that's a good point. And I would also say that, you know, people think, say to me, oh my goodness, you've got the most important job in the world and so on. And I always think, okay, that's interesting. Did you even know that the Social Mobility Commission existed last year? Do you know who the chair used to be? Um, and it, because I'm me, and then I've taken this position, which is only a few days a month, I'm still very much headmistress at Michaela, uh, people then think, oh my goodness. But the fact is that um, the, what, what the, the, this old commissioner said is correct. Uh, the commission exists and then they do these reports and then often these reports go ignored. And um, we, I'm not in the business of being ignored. <laughs> <laughs> I don't waste my time. And so 
I need, I think I need to be quite selective and interesting about the things that we choose to put forward. Um, I do think, for instance, and I understand why I'm not in government, but I can imagine that if I just said, because a lot of people say to me, well, you have to tell the Tories how terrible they are and you have to accuse government. And that that's the kind of the reason why I exist is simply to accuse the conservative government of being terrible. Um, I don't think there's any point in that. Uh, I mean, we can all go on all day about how terrible Boris Johnson is. I just explained how one of my kids corrected him. But I don't think that's going to come to any use. I do think, however, uh, looking at things that are useful, that the government can conceivably do, and not only the government, but what families can do, what we, how can we as a society make it so that children from more disadvantaged backgrounds, uh, that more of them have more doors open to them. And so notice how I'm being, you know, I, I'm, I'm containing my uh, expectations. I'm not saying that being in position means in this position that suddenly all poor children will end up doing exactly what they want with their lives and so on. That's not what I'm saying, right? Um, it, 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 I'm going to try and make things better. And it is certainly the case that if I think a particular idea is a good one, I will do my very best to get back on your show and talk about it and to give uh, as much publicity as I can to some of these ideas. Uh, in order, I suppose, if necessary, if it is something where it's government that I want to act, put pressure on them. But it may also be that I want families to act. Yeah. And that is something, for instance, I think that people never really think about. They think social mobility. Well, that's just about the government. Well, it just isn't. It's about a whole bunch of different things. And it's not necessarily about putting more money in. I think we could right now, with no more money in the education system, we could make things better simply with different ideas. Um, and with fewer people saying the stuff that you were just quoting about how uh, order stifles creativity. If there was less of that and more of an understanding of just how great order and structure and scaffolding and support of children, if we understood how good that is for these kinds of kids, then we'd all be doing it without, an, a, sing, without a single extra pound in the system, you know? Uh, yeah, it, it's not just about money. It, it's about a whole variety of things. and. Um, and I want to try and give some publicity to those ideas, as well as possibly asking for some money. That's not, you know, <laughs> so it's not just about money, but sometimes sometimes that that helps. Uh, Catherine, I just want to ask you one more question, just because I know it it, it blew up. Sorry, I think you responded to someone on Twitter with a comment um, when you said that uh, children were born with original sin and they need to be taught how to be good. Were you surprised by the way that that blew up? And why did you feel the need to say it? Yeah. I mean, I think I just to correct you when I said that I didn't say they were born with original sin. This what is original sin? Original sin is Adam and Eve ate this apple. If that, as the story goes, because I'm not a Christian, but as the story goes, and therefore man is fallen, man is flawed, he's not perfect. So when I use the term original sin, I didn't say born with original, I just said original sin. <laughs> um, it was simply to explain that that's why children need to be taught to behave well because we are flawed. And because we're flawed, that means that if you put two toddlers in a room with a toy, they're gonna get into a fight about it. They're not gonna sit there and say, okay, you have your turn now, and then I'll take my turn in, in half an hour, and then we can chat about it. That's not gonna happen. You have to teach them. Uh, otherwise, you know, your toddler might um, throw his birthday cake 
across the across the room because it's blue instead of green um it's not because he's a bad person it's because of original sin and when i say original sin what i mean is because we're flawed um and once we understand that we're flawed we get that it's more difficult to do what's good for us than it is to do what's bad for us so i often refer, refer to the fact that I would love to get on my treadmill every day and sometimes I don't. Instead, I eat some chocolate brownies. And that's because it's much easier to eat chocolate brownies than it is to get on my treadmill or to eat broccoli. Um, it's harder to do what's right. And that's why over time, we need to habitualize children into choosing what's not just right for society, but right for us. Because it's harder to do that. Much easier to sit on the sofa than to go to the gym. Much easier to uh, not want to share and to just grab the toy, I want to play with it ourselves. But much easier to just grab the chocolate bar from mum instead of saying, please, mummy, could I have the chocolate bar? And much easier to just take it and eat it instead of saying, thanks so much, mummy. And after a while, every time you give the child the chocolate bar, you say, now, what do we say? Please, yes, well done, here you go. Now, what do you say? Thank you, well done. This is a mother or a teacher habitualizing a child into a certain way of being both to be able to feel the gratitude and to be able to express the gratitude yeah this is something a child is not born with we need to teach them these things that's all i was saying well uh, lots of people have heard that i should point out Catherine, that as well as the people saying that the school sounded like it wasn't a lot of fun we've also had other messages on the other side mimi says music to my ears a career in teaching and i insisted that discipline is the starting point it worked, and I still have kids who have stayed in touch from years ago. Seen teachers go for the easy option with easy lessons and flaky discipline as driven out the very best teachers. So, yeah. um, and we've had we've had loads of messages on all sides. So it's been really good to speak to you, Catherine. Um, we shall get you back when you've got some, when you've um, had a bit of time to get your feet under the desk at the Social Mobility Commission. You've got some ideas. We'll get you back, yeah. and we'll find out if Boris Johnson's taken them up. <laughs> Okay, fingers crossed. <laughs> Catherine Burble Singh, head teacher at the Michaela Free School in North London and also chair of the Social Mobility Commission. That's all we've got time for on today's episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. And you can listen via the Times Radio app. Catch me Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, live on Times Radio. And if you want to come on and play the hugely popular quiz, can you get to number 10? Email me your details, matt.chorley at times.radio. And we'll get you on very soon. Thank you.